Hello, and welcome to this episode on other depressive disorders. My name is Alyssa, and I'll go over persistent depressive disorder, premenstrual dysphoric disorder, peripartum depression, and seasonal affective disorder. Before I can begin, I have to include this. A lot of people will read or hear the symptoms of a mental disorder and freak out that they have it. There are more criteria than just the symptoms. A lot of disorders can overlap too. So please do not assume or diagnose yourself or others. This podcast is not meant to diagnose. If you suspect of a mental disorder, please see a doctor. You may see a general practitioner, but I highly suggest you choose a psychiatrist because their entire focus is on mental illness. When discussing with a doctor and you feel you disagree, you always have the right to seek another doctor's opinion. Okay, I'll start with persistent depressive disorder. This is a consolidation of DSM-IV's chronic major depressive disorder and dysthymic disorder. So it is called persistent depressive disorder, but it can be referred to as dysthymia. So right now, if you Google dysthymia, it'll probably say that it's a mild but long-lasting form of depression. This has changed with DSM-5 because now they recognize that the severity can change. That's really the biggest difference you would need to know between DSM-IV and DSM-5. See how things online aren't always right or up to date? You gotta be careful when looking things up. If you forgot what DSM stands for, it's Diagnostic Statistical Manual and it's commonly used in the US. Since 2013, we are now on the fifth edition. So persistent depressive disorder, or I'll call it PDD, does differ a bit from major depressive disorder, or MDD. For one, MDD has to be a minimum of two weeks. It can be referred to as major depressive episodes. For PDD, it has to be for a minimum of two years in adults and one year in children and adolescents. Another difference is that instead of having five or more symptoms with one of it being dysphoria or loss of pleasure, it has to be just two or more for PDD. You've got to remember though, this means that you're having these symptoms for most of the day for every day. So just like with MDD, it has to include that dysphoric mood, but DSM-5 does not mention loss of interest or pleasure. The next symptom listed for PDD is poor appetite or overeating, but does not mention the 5% body weight change like for MDD. Next is insomnia or hypersomnia, and then after that, it's the low energy or fatigue, so those two are almost parallel to the criteria in MDD. Next is low self-esteem. If you remember from MDD, it had a criteria of having feelings of worthlessness or excessive guilt or inappropriate guilt that may or may not be delusional. The feelings of worthlessness is definitely part of having low self-esteem. But other things could show low self-esteem too, like constant negative self-talk. The last thing you'll find on this list is feelings of hopelessness. A triad that my professor used to drill into us is hopelessness, helplessness, and worthlessness. The common three things you may see for someone with a depressive disorder. Anyway, so what else is missing in PDD that was listed for MDD? the suicide, and the psychomotor change. But it seems like a lot of the symptoms overlap, right? So what if someone does have symptoms of both? Well, in cases like these, the diagnosis would be called persistent depressive disorder with persistent or intermittent episodes of major depression that can be current or has occurred at least once in the past. Sometimes it's referred to as double depression, like a double whammy. And very technically, I fall into this. So for mine, it's persistent depressive disorder with persistent major depression. That is so long and people would probably think that I'm trying to be super extra or something. I don't know. But I just say I've had major depression for as long as I can remember since that's also true. 
And by the way, not only have I had every single symptom of PDD, but I've experienced every single symptom of MDD simultaneously before too. Not always, of course, but I always met criteria. As for severity, I've definitely fluctuated throughout life. The worst episode was when I slept for most of the day, only got up to pee, really, and when I would go back to bed, I would literally just stare at the wall until I fell back asleep. Yeah, that was not a good one. Definitely not something I'd want someone else to go through. Anyways, for something that lasts this long, as in at least two years to be diagnosed with PDD, we can actually specify it to be in partial or full remission. You've most likely heard the term remission for cancer survivors, but mental illness can go into remission too, because, well, it's an illness too. To be considered in full remission, it has to be at least two months of no significant signs or symptoms. This is possible, and I can tell you firsthand that it's possible because with the right cocktail of medications that I do need to take every day, I am now finally in full remission. 20-some years later, I am now finally in full remission. It's possible, so please don't give up. Okay, alright, I'll move along. Next is going to be premenstrual dysphoric disorder, or PMDD. A lot of you may have heard of PMS, that's premenstrual dysphoric syndrome. First of all, yes, PMS is real. <laughs> you will not believe how many people have tried to argue with me on this, but it's real. It just doesn't happen for every single female out there in the world. A syndrome just means that there's a group of symptoms that occur together, whereas a disorder means that there is a serious dysfunction in some aspect of life, such as not being able to do your job to the point that you get fired. So just think of PMDD as a more severe version of PMS. PMS is definitely more prevalent or more common than PMDD. So both PMS and PMDD occur the week before the onset of your period and then improves once the shedding begins. PMDD needs to meet at least five symptoms total in the DSM-5 with at least one symptom from two different categories. I'll go through the first category. One, market affective lability, which includes mood swings, feeling suddenly sad or tearful, or increased sensitivity to rejection. Two, market irritability or anger or increased interpersonal conflicts. Three, market depressed mood, feelings of hopelessness, or self-depreciating thoughts. Four, market anxiety, tension, and or feelings of being keyed up or on edge. Then there's category two, and it has to meet at least one of these. Ready? One, decreased interest in usual activities, whether that be work, school, hobbies, etc. Two, subjective difficulty in concentration. Three, lethargy, easily fatigability, or marked lack of energy. Four, marked change in appetite, overeating, or specific food cravings. Five, hypersomnia or insomnia. Six, a sense of being overwhelmed or out of control. Seven, physical symptoms such as breast tenderness or swelling, joint or muscle pain, a sensation of bloating or weight gain. Okay, so at least one from category one and two, but needs to have five in total to be considered. Again, do not diagnose yourself or others. A lot of these symptoms are seen in PMS too, so it really has to be at a seriously dysfunctional level for it to be a disorder. If you're really worried that this is you, Go ahead and grab a journal and begin to write all of your symptoms on what days and how severe you feel it is on a scale of 1 through 10. 
don't forget to note the onset of menses and the end of it. You should do this for at least two menstrual cycles. Once you get that done, you can bring it to your gynecologist and discuss with him or her openly. Your gynecologist's job is not to shame you or dismiss you. It's a very disturbing fact, but many OBGYNs have biases or internal racism. These clinicians may essentially diminish or not consider the symptoms to be as serious or important in minority females, especially black Americans. If you feel your doctor is pretty much gaslighting you, ask for another doctor immediately. Also, it's totally okay to ask for a doctor who's black, Asian, Hispanic, whatever. Whatever you're comfortable with, we should be able to accommodate. So this actually transitions nicely into the next, which is DSM-5's depressive disorder with peripartum onset, also known as peripartum depression. So I'm reading directly from the book here. It says, most recent episode of major depression if onset of mood symptoms occurs during pregnancy or the four weeks following. So peripartum means weeks before or after delivery. I'm seeing a lot more reference to the word perinatal instead of peripartum, or they're just used interchangeably. The difference is going to be within the root words. So perinatal is in more reference to the baby because natal, that's newborn, and peripartum is more in reference to the mother who is going to be delivering the baby or, you know, literally parting with the baby. I can see how it's used interchangeably because they're both referring to the before and after giving birth. Okay, and then there's postpartum depression, which is definitely far more commonly known, but again, look at the root word post. So this is supposed to be in reference to only after birth, not before. Postpartum's onset is commonly four weeks after delivery, but since everyone is different, it doesn't have to be exactly four weeks on the dot. It could be like three weeks or three months. The latest it could be considered is actually up to a year. If symptoms are sooner than the four weeks, professionals have to be able to discern it between that and the baby blues. Baby blues is actually a syndrome pretty much. It's like the PMS to the PMDD. Baby blues doesn't occur in every single woman, but it's more common than not because a female's body just went through major fluctuations in hormones and a lot of physical body changes. So it's totally reasonable that they may experience mood swings, including anxiety or irritability, sadness or crying, and just that feeling of being overwhelmed. There can also be some appetite, concentration, and sleep changes, but these should only last for a few days or up to about two weeks. For it to be postpartum depression, and I'm going to say PPD from now on, it follows very closely to the criteria of MDD. So again, for it to be considered a disorder, the symptoms can be the same as baby blues, but it is much more severe to the point that it causes some kind of dysfunction in their daily living. It's common for someone with MDD to withdraw from family and friends, and that's true for PPD as well. But for PPD, you may also see them not be able to bond with their newborn. And this is probably where the stigma exists the worst. When people see the mother not bonding well, they just automatically think that she's a bad mother. That's so rude. There's literally something keeping her from being able to bond and just because it's a mental illness and you can't see it, doesn't mean that this barrier doesn't exist. 
It's like, what if a mother has COVID and has breathing issues, which prevents her from bonding with the newborn adequately too? Are you going to say that she is a bad mother? It's not like these mothers are just grabbing depression from thin air and putting it into their head. It's not something that's as controllable as you may think. And if you're thinking, oh, but you can do things to prevent COVID, well, you can technically do things to prevent PPD too, but it's nowhere as easy as preventing COVID. What's even worse is when the media broadcasts a woman with postpartum depression killing their baby. That is so rare. These women more than likely had psychotic features on top of their PPD, but even then, stories like that are so, so rare. So rare that you shouldn't even be thinking of that when someone tells you that they have PPD. And lastly, I do want to mention that there is more recognition now for fathers undergoing postpartum depression, just like the mothers. It's not yet included in the DSM, probably because there still needs to be a lot more research done. Whew. Okay, last but not least is going to be DSM-5's depressive disorder with a seasonal pattern. Most of you may know it as seasonal affective disorder. I kind of hate that though, only because the acronym is SAD, which spells out sad, and I'm just like, mm, okay, well, anyways, whatever. So many people have self-diagnosed themselves with this without ever seeing a doctor, and that actually kind of frustrates me because there is such a thing called the winter blues. Just like with the baby blues, the symptoms are very similar, but it doesn't affect the individual so much so that they cannot dysfunction in some aspect of their life. So why do we feel gloomy when the sun is gone? Well, not only are you lowering your vitamin D intake, but it can disturb the relationship between our sleep-wake cycles and its effects on biochemicals in our brain. You're more than welcome to delve further into that, but I won't go through the nitty gritty. Once again, symptomatic criterias are the same as MDD, but that they only occur during the fall and winter months, and it can't be due to something like not having any work during that season. By springtime, the individual is in remission. It's super uncommon to have recurrent summer depressive episodes, but it is possible. This pattern needs to have occurred during at least a two-year period. I do plan to do podcasts on treatments for depression, but this one specifically has a treatment called light therapy. It's literally shining bright light onto yourself, and what's really cool about this is that it can actually help with the winter blues as well as the seasonal affective disorder. Oftentimes though, those with seasonal affective disorder are going through therapy in addition to the light therapy. So light therapy consists of at least 10,000 lux without UV rays, and it's attainable without prescription. Each light box will tell you what their lux is and what distance to put it at. The recommendation is at least 20 minutes per day, usually first thing in the morning, during the fall-winter depressive episodes. But it could also be like 30 minutes in the morning and 30 minutes at night. You and your therapist may play around with it to see what works best. There are mild side effects that's been reported, such as jitteriness, headache, and nausea. You're not supposed to directly stare into it so your eyes don't get damaged, but if you're still worried about it affecting your vision, definitely ask your doctor about it before using. All right, so there are other specifiers for depressive disorders than just postpartum and seasonal, but I don't feel the need to delve into them. If you really want to know, I'll just name them real quick. There's depressive disorder with anxious distress, with mixed features, with melancholic features, with atypical features, with psychotic features, and with catatonia. 
The other things that are included in DSM-5 that I did not talk about are substance or medication-induced depressive disorder, depressive disorder due to another medical condition, recurrent brief depression, short-duration depressive episodes, and depressive episodes with insufficient symptoms. I think all of you guys can guess what those are just because it's pretty much in the name itself, but feel free to go look it up on your own. Well, that wraps up this episode. I'm sending out good vibes to everyone. I hope you learned something or can share this podcast with someone. Thank you so much for listening.